0: This is Sam Beerig, host of Credo's Biblical Theology podcast, where biblical theology is placed in conversation with the great tradition. And I'm excited to have uh, our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Um, He's the professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary. He's been there since 2005 there in Louisville, and he also serves at Sojourn East uh, as as a teaching pastor. Uh, More importantly, and I'm sure he would say this as well, is that he's a husband and father Um, And and maybe for me personally, only slightly less importantly, is he is also the host of Cars Coffee and Theology. So, of course, you're an author. That's why we found ourselves to this. Um, Most recently, you've done a couple different things. We're going to be talking about um, your chapter on Matthew, but you've written a book called Come and See uh, with Crossway, uh, just on the subject of reading, understanding, applying the scriptures um, and then helping us understand uh, just how to see God right in the, in the text. And so thankful for that work as well. You had an interview fairly recently on, on our other podcast with Dr. Barrett on Jesus as, as philosopher. And so uh, folks can check into that as well. Your, your other book that we're not going to talk about as much, but I know is a passion project for you is um, your small preaching. Um, anything you want to say maybe about that one particularly before we just keep going?
1: Yeah, I mean that book is a joy to me. It was an opportunity just to kind of uh, think through and write very short, succinct uh, little ideas that you can do to develop as a preacher. Because I really care a lot about the the ministry of the word in that sense as well. So yeah, thanks for bringing it up.
0: Yeah. Okay, I have a um an and I hope an interesting question for you, and it'll be interesting for everybody else. But if you could only choose one of your books to stay in the test of time? It's still around. People were still looking at it, reading it in, in 300 years. What, which one would you choose? <laughs> wow. Great question. Um, I'd say at this point,
1: the book I'm probably the most proud of in terms of representing kind of my vision of life is the jesus the great philosopher book Um, it's not my most it's not you know as academic as some of the other books but it represents a lot of years of thinking and kind of bringing things together i am uh Trying to finish up the pillar commentary on Matthew, and yeah. so if if there's any chance of any book being read
0: beyond even 50 years from now, it's probably
1: going to be that one. You know, just yeah. his commentary just going to stand at the time.
0: So yeah, okay. Well, fascinating. I, yeah, I mean, I I did not know what you would say, that's why I'm asking the question. But that that's really interesting. Mm. Okay, so I ask every guest this question, and it's um uh I'll explain it if it, if it doesn't make immediate sense to you. But the question is this. When do you note yeah. your first, uh, quote-unquote, biblical theological thoughts? Like, was it a particular book when you realized, um, man, this whole thing hangs together? Um, you can say canonical theological thought, whatever you may want to refer to it as. But when you realize this is all one grand scope and God is speaking to us through the canon itself um, and, and it all came together. Do you do you remember that When when that may have been? <laughs> that's very interesting I was first going to ask what do you mean by biblical theology because yeah, that of course, actually means yes. a, lot, a lot of different things but then <laughs> yep. you kind of
1: defined it uh, a little bit there with in a particular way of kind of seeing the Bible sitting together I, you know I don't know for sure but I think it was actually after seminary maybe it was there in seminary I went to Trinity in the late 90s uh, and it might have been there I really don't remember it though I mean that was If so, it was not on my radar. I think it was probably more in the PhD years and maybe just after reading Craig Bartholomew, probably the drama. Uh, Sure. Was probably one of the early, so it might've even been right when I got to Southern in 2005 or six. Again, maybe it was there before, but I was doing kind of more academic New Testament work at Trinity, you know, with incredible professors like, you know, Don Carson and Bob Yarbrough and Grant Osborne. So it was kind of a more New Testament scholarship kind of approach, which, right. you know, in the broader sense. And then in my PhD years in Scotland, that was for sure what I was doing.
0: So I think it was probably after that, it was probably like 05 or 06. I think it was Craig you probably. So what's interesting about you mentioning that particular book is I, I teach on the undergrad here, um, biblical theology, hermeneutics, okay. other stuff. But in the biblical theology class, I go back and forward between the, my answer to that question is my reading of Graham Goldsworthy according to plan. Like mm-hmm. that's when I first, mm-hmm. and I will move back and forth. Cause I can never quite decide which one I want them to be introduced to it with between Bartholomew and that one. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, and there's, and there you know, are some differences Yeah, no, there are no some doubt. Differences yes. in it a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My
1: inclinations are probably more towards
0: Bartholomew world, partly
1: because and when I was in St. Andrews, we didn't really talk about BT per se, but I was involved in, what became called the theological interpretation of scripture? We didn't yeah. really call it that originally. And Craig was a huge part of that. Right. In a way that Goldsworthy's project is not in the same right. way. Yes. And in fact, the scripture and hermeneutics series, that famous set of volumes, I think it was the 2004 conference was in St. Andrews when a bunch of us were there as PhD students and we got to attend it. And then in the, in the following years, I was very involved with Craig and other in this early attempt to at whatever TIS is. And so I think that probably inclines me more towards Craig's way, which is more, I think, theological mm-hmm. as much as it is biblical theological, you right. know, which are not exactly the same thing. So yeah, it's a sure. good question. No,
0: I love it. I love just to hear you riff on it. Um, well, I uh, want to take a personal liberty as, as sort of the host and just compliment you and, and thank you for one thing. I finished my MDiv... Uh, and and decided very, it was a very uh, intentional decision, but I was going to take one year before I started my PhD, but I am through and through as nerdy as they come. So like part of what I was doing in that year was I'm going to just load up a bunch of books that I've wanted to read and I can't, mm. I can't read. And uh, reading the gospels wisely made that list. Um, it, so this is like f- probably five years, I guess, after it it came out somewhere in there, four or five years. And uh by then, and I I mean, this is a commendation to you. There was, I had heard the hype. It's like, man, this is a great book. This is so good. I did not know you at the time or anything like that. But so I chose to read it and it delivered brother. Like I I just was really thankful to, that was a wonderful year for me of getting to read a lot of things that I, you know, had backlogged and and wanted to do it. That was one of them. And it, it, it delivered on the hype. So, so congrats. I know that's a a late commendation, but appreciate (laughs) your work on it. Very meaningful and very kind, thank you so much. Means a lot to me. Good. Well, um, so today we're going to be discussing uh, lo- loosely speaking, Trinitarian exegesis in the, in the book of Matthew. Matthew's not loosely speaking, but um, just in particular, <laughs> uh, yeah, Brandon Smith's The Trinity in the Canon. Uh, you were a contributor along with a, another of other guys and, and gals and, and so just thankful for your work there and that's going to be the nature of most of what we discuss. Um, and, and yeah, shout out to um, Eddie LaRoe and, and company there at b who, who connected me with a book so I could be prepared to, to inter- interview you. And, and I think um, what's interesting is <laughs> the older I get, the more in tuned I become with my experience of, of sort of the aesthetic of the book, whatever the feel is, weight, page, mm. typeset, all that. And I think Brandon and, and folks um, there at B&H did a really good job. It's got some great heft to it, judicious usage of space. Uh, per page, and so it was a it was a good mm-hmm. experience um, of just reading it as well. But um, so we'll start the conversation and, and want to kind of hang out in the uh, proposed, anyways, crossroads of theology and, and exegesis, two disciplines really that um, have have unnecessarily been torn asunder in some ways, but but are distinguishable in some ways. So on on page one twelve, and and. The, the audience will, doesn't have to go here or anything, but it'll get a little more tactical for me. This is towards your end. I want to um, quote something here as, as sort of a starting place. Uh, you say, Any approach to interpreting biblical texts that start with an anti-theological assumption is as wise and winsome as a plumber, confidently asserting that he only needs a screwdriver to accomplish all his work. Numerous biblical <laughs> scholars— and theologians are increasingly recognizing, uh, parenthetical note here, really rediscovering that biblical exegesis and theological reasoning are not enemies or strange bedfellows, but necessary part, partners in the dance of the Christian faith and understanding. So that was in your conclusion. But um, why start there? Why, why um, start with uh, exegesis being distinguishable but not inseparable from theology? How, how has that driven this chapter and even your work? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I forgot about that quote. <laughs> I enjoyed it. So. <laughs> you, have, you actually have a number <laughs> of uh, dime drops all, all the way through that are, right, that are right. at least that great. Right. That's funny. Good. Um,
1: yeah. So the relationship of exegesis theology, boy, that's such a big issue. And I'm so glad that it is. Um, we're in a different era than we were even 10 years ago, 15 right. years ago, 20 years ago, probably the, you know, my, you know, PhD level kind of academic life world is about what, 20, 20 25 years going now. And wow, what a difference there is. I, I keep being uh, happily surprised when I read various things like my two former students, Bobby Jameson and and uh, Tyler Whitman, they're excellent book biblical reasoning. Both right. of them were students of mine who are, I think, you know, surpassed me in every way, which is wonderful. Um, you know, reading their book and like, you know, I, I've kind of actually talked to a good friend of mine who were, we were there together in the old days and we were both like, this is a great book. And it's so encouraging to see that the stuff that we were stumbling our way to trying to understand when there was a lot more opposition to that kind of reading mm-hmm. has now had just a lot more, um, you know, reasonableness to it. <laughs> no right. pun intended. So yeah. Yeah. anyways, but, but it is, it does sit on this issue of what's the relationship of theology next to Jesus. And I, And I think at least when I was coming up in the kind of intellectual world in the end of days, et cetera, the conflict that was perceived between them, probably on both sides, both directions, the theology department and the the biblical studies departments, were that neither of them uh, were, you know, Uh, Not only both of them could be influenced negatively by being too aware of the other. So, you know, biblical studies has too much theology in it. Then you're not really doing biblical studies and biblical studies people were concerned that theologians weren't really studying text carefully. And, you know, fair enough that that's probably has happened. But I think there's something more fundamentally problematic under that, you know, posturing or under that, um, you know, construction of reality. And that is this assumption that they are two separate fields. They're doing biblical studies, which we can represent by exegesis here, and doing theological studies, thinking about the Trinity or thinking about biblical theology, if you want or But especially, you know, theology proper and, and more kind of traditional creedal categories. You know, those, those two things, have, you know, modernism told us that they were suspicious of each other and that's um that was a big it's been a big change that we've been kind of rediscovering and and i think the reason or how they fit together and the reason why they should fit together is that first of all we don't you know you really can't read anything apart from your own situatedness and our situatedness includes the ways in which um we have been traditioned Um, by any number of things. Hopefully it's orthodox Trinitarian (laughs) theology, but it, but it may not be, right? I mean, you can be traditioned into all kinds of assumptions and we have, we all have blind spots and soft spots in our, in our thinking. And there's not only nothing wrong with a, you know trinitarian creedal orthodox way of reading scripture it's highly to be commended because it enables you to read well and i can't help but think of how the church fathers talked about this i'm sure you're well familiar with this many people have used the example of you know if you remember that say the arians that is the you know followers of arius they read the same bible that we do and the issue is not exegesis per se, whether it's Greek or Hebrew or, you know, understanding, you know, adverbial participles or whatever it is. The issue is that plus the frame by which you understand it. And, you know, the fathers used this illustration of that the Bible is full of all these mosaic tiles, these tesserae. And you can take all those tiles and you can actually put them together and make a different picture you can turn Jesus into a fox rather than into the king or the son of David. And it's with the same Bible you can do that. And so clearly exegesis, quote unquote, is necessary, but not sufficient for a good reading of Holy scripture. We need those two things, like what scripture teaches at the larger constructive level of theology. We need that to be in dialogue, uh, with, you know, close readings of texts. And last thing I'd say about that is, that's not the same thing as saying that we just need traditions to be like side by side with holy scripture. I mean, part of the historic Christian understanding, and maybe especially in the last 500 years, especially the Protestant understanding, was that scripture is the norming norm. It's the it's the fountainhead, it's the authority, but none of the reformers, of course, you all know, didn't think that didn't, they didn't think that meant tradition was unimportant, but we've always emphasized as Protestants that scripture has to, you know, be superior over tradition. And that, you know, unfortunately has kind of worked its way out in people's minds as saying that tradition is suspicious or tradition is somehow um, harmful to biblical exegesis, but that's simply not the case. So hopefully I said a lot of different things there. Hopefully that uh, gets at some of the ideas you're asking.
0: No, it's great. Well okay so for the listener just uh, how how you break this chapter down is kind of main, three main sections you have your lexical work towards the front um, you move to three different significant texts eventually through Matthew that that have all three persons present uh, present and then um, you land on how to interpret the Trinity in a narrative flow of of Matthew and I want to just quote one piece from that last section uh, of, of the narrative flow of Matthew and And then just ask you a question about it. But this is uh, in that third section here towards the end before you get to your conclusion. But you say, doctrines described in propositional terms and statements are good and at points essential. But propositions and abstractions are not the only way theology is communicated, especially in Holy Scripture. There, they are not even the most common way. Rather, theological truth, the witness to who God is, most commonly comes to us in the form of narrative and narratives are irreducible, which I thought was very helpful. That is, we cannot view the historical narratives of the Bible as mere husks to be discarded once we have shucked out and sucked out their propositional marrow. The story itself contains and is the revelation of who God is. Narrative has the unique ability to contain paradox and to engage the whole person uh, within the rootedness of historical reality. It is the most comprehensive form of theological reflection. I my my thought as as I work through just your setup, right, and and I wrestle my way through these same things. But you did your your lexical work up front. You're moving into you know key texts, and then you uh, make a you you move us in a direction and say the narrative flow of Matthew is is rich with theology. It isn't just a matter of doing lexical work or even syntactical work. Mm-hmm. And I just found it to be a model in, in sorts of like w- what are we trying to do when we're preparing to preach uh, or lecturing or trying to do a Sunday school, whatever it may be. Um, we really need to work through some of these categories of of what you're doing. Um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about the narrative flow idea. Like, uh, there was some Mm. juice in that and I'm, I'm looking to get some out of it if that's possible. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. That's, uh, I think a, a good choice of a quote. I think that's probably
1: representative well of my thoughts on this. Um, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, I think there are a number of things I, I quote and mention. my supervisor who had a big influence on me, Richard Bauckham, and the idea of narrative or shared, shared identity that a lot of the things. So if you think about traditional Christological categories, for example, I, I was teaching last weekend somewhere on at a, like a Christology kind of church based conference. And, and I started by talking about this, that, you know, the traditional kind of mode of doing christology in the modern period has been like titles what does Mm -hmm. son of man mean what does son of god mean what is and that's great i mean they can be helpful but really ultimately you have to interpret those within a category within the categories of the narratives and particularly the gospels because a lot of times how christology for example or any theological truth is being communicated is more subtle than just a title um, and this is one of the things that Bakum points out, going way back to right early 2000s, is that many of the things Jesus says, and especially that He does, are things that are only allowed by by divine prerogative. Right. So, forgiving of sins, right. Um, Walking on water, potentially. I mean, that one, you know, we have to add some nuance to it because Peter does briefly, but I think he does it only through, you know, kind of proleptically of what Jesus is bringing about the new creation. But there are these things uh, being worshiped. That's one of the most obvious ones that only God should be worshiped as Jesus himself affirms. And so you need more than just a a title approach to figure out who Jesus is, or if you want to speak more broadly, who God is, you need to see what does God do? in the world because that, that divine identity is revealed. And so that's where narratives are so important because you, you can't just kind of boil them down to propositions. There are things that are alluded to. There are things that are revealed only through,
0: you know, narrative
1: events is, uh, I guess i would answer that.
0: Yeah. I, I actually found, and you, you made mention just a moment ago of, um, uh, how how does one find Matthew revealing the Trinity and and you you majored especially on authority and on that he was worshipped and I I found mm-hmm. that to be extremely compelling. It's not something that I'm completely unfamiliar with, but just for you to spread off a spot and go, no, these are in the narrative flow. This is inescapable, right and and it should inform mm-hmm. us just as much as as the titles or the nomina sacra or, or something like this, right and and so mm-hmm. yeah, it was mm-hmm. just really. Helped by that, and I thought that was a, a good way to conclude. Well, um, in one sense, let's let's last question here, but bringing it back towards the front, um, the but tilting the question just a little bit after even working through um, your your Matthew chapter here. So, how should our theology? Like we're coming to a text uh, theologically trained, whether that's sharply with creeds, these sorts of things. Um, obviously, being maybe hopefully. Uh, raised in a strong church, these sorts of things. But we're coming to a text with those things, and then we begin to exegete with those theological categories. And so our theology is informing our our exegesis. But then Mm -hmm. um, it's obvious that that should boomerang back, and our our theology should then be informed or increased or intensified or something uh, by our exegesis. Um, How does that work for you personally? I mean, I know you've been working on Matthew for like 437 years uh, but, yeah, so where do where does that work for you when you come fresh to a book that you're not as familiar with? um how is your theology you know informing that exegesis, but then also your exegesis is illuminating various things
1: yeah, good question um, uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty conscious, I'm sure there's subconscious levels that it's operating at as well, but I'm pretty conscious that all of my readings are not generated by theological constructs that are guarded right. and guided by them. And so, you know, John 1 is a really great example. Um, you know, John 1, 1 to 18, certainly one of the most important texts in the scriptures um, with its clarity and its beauty of arguing that Jesus, the son, is the Logos, um, who is simultaneously um, divine and separate. From the father, um, in some sense, and so that text, you know, you or or another related one is the idea of, say, Colossians, where Paul talks about Jesus, another place where Paul talks about Jesus being the firstborn. Well, you know, you need you need help to read both of those texts, so that you're not an Aryan, mm-hmm. <laughs> because yep. you you could you could read. Um, especially first foreign language. And of course, this is what the Aryans do. They read that as meaning the first created being. Um, and that is where, you know, John one really helps you recognize with its bold statement that you, the Logos, who is Jesus is clearly, uh, who's become a human. John one fourteen is both simultaneously divine um, and the fullness of God dwells in him. Uh, And he is also distinct because he's the son. Well, you need those texts to be in dialogue with each other and you need help um, from reflections on on one. And then especially how um, faithful, very thoughtful theologians throughout history have learned to articulate the ways in which the son is simultaneously of the same essence, but also distinct from the father. You need those helps when you read a text like Colossians 1 about Jesus being the firstborn, because you could wrongly read those as he's the first created being, right? So there's where, you know, theology is informing exegesis and exegesis is, you know, looking closely at John 1, looking closely at Colossians, firstborn from the dead, you clearly seeing, oh, he's the... The preeminent one and the first one who conquers death as the second Adam, you know those texts then give us theological categories as well. And so there's this beautiful dance always between theological constructs in biblical exegesis, all rooted in the Bible. We're not talking about you know just you know some foreign thing coming in here, but it's all this mutual forming, this dance uh, between them. I think I say in that same section something about one must learn to dosi do with the other canonical authors right, yes. who don't necessarily say exactly the same thing while also all left and right with the creed of orthodoxy. So yeah, look up those terms. If you don't know anything about dancing square dance, right. you'll figure it out. So No, that was,
0: uh, as, as the other quote, that was one, or, uh, you know, those are two of maybe 10 of those that, that you, you hit a few little Easter eggs in there for us, um, for just to to enjoy. <clears> well, yeah, I mean, it, it does remind me of, um, I remember a, a number of years ago I was reading Mark Gentilette's, um, Ooh, what was the name of it? Uh, reading the Old Testament canonically, I think, is what mm-hmm. it is. And he has a, a comment on, in there where he says, "Let's just put it this way: God was not waiting till Matthew one one to to become Triune, right?" And uh, and I just I just think that's helpful. You know, we we he, it does need to be factored into our exegesis. Our theology is inherently there, and we don't need to uh, bracket it out mm-hmm. in any way. Well, brother, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, again, the book is called The Trinity and the Canon, um, edited by Brandon Smith. And and Dr. Pennington has contributed the Matthew chapter. And there are another, uh, other uh, great chapters in here um, that, that folks could avail themselves of. And, and um, yeah, thank you, brother, for, for your work. And, and we look forward to seeing more of it coming out. Thank you so much. This podcast is a product of Credo Magazine. For more resources like this, visit credomag.com. The theme song for the Biblical Theology Podcast is Space Cadet by Philanthropy and Sleepy Fish, provided courtesy of Chillhop Music. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Sam Bierig and produced by Ben Van Holstein.